0: We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovics. Joining me today is Jeff Christian, managing partner of CPM Group. How are you today, Jeff? Pretty good. How are you? I'm excellent. Thanks for joining me today and coming back on the show. I know we've got a a lot to talk about here, and I'd like to kind of start by maybe getting a little bit of historical context, if we could, Jeff. You know, going back, you guys do a gold report and a silver report every year. You do a lot of research, and that's the main thing that you're focused on is the research in the commodities in the metals here. So you issued an intermediate and long-term buy recommendation on gold in November of 2000 at around $285 if i'm if i'm correct. Yeah. There. I just want to maybe start by understanding what were some of the catalysts to prompt that buy recommendation at that time.
1: It's funny, you know, we do have a gold yearbook and the gold yearbooks now come out in late March, but back then we used to call them gold surveys and they came out in the first week of November and i'll be very blunt it was the first it was november of 2000 uh we had just gone through the election and we didn't have a president because the vote in florida was flawed and it was up in the air and that went on for like into january i think uh but it looked like uh george w bush was going to be president um uh, we had Uh, very much overheated stock market that was really the tech bubble. And I was one of those people who, the same way I was one of those people who said, don't go into cryptos because they're going to be like the tech bubble in 1999, 2000. -hmm. Uh, I was one of those guys in 1999, 2000 saying, don't go into these tech stocks. There are some that are good, but there's a whole lot of weird stuff like, three guys living in their dorm at college with a five-page business plan, and they raised half a billion dollars for an a, a internet startup, you know. And I said, this has got to end poorly. Uh, you also had some other things going on. And we just looked at the economy. We looked at political developments in the United States. The European uh, Central Bank and the European, the ECU, had started in January of 1999. You had rumblings of problems in throughout the Middle East and throughout the Muslim world. Uh, Russia uh, was uh, fighting the Chechnya revolution. Putin had come in and basically said to Yeltsin, "I'm going to be your deputy. I will solve Chechnya by basically flattening it, and and then I will be president." (laughs) Yeah. So you had a lot of political problems. You had the economic problems. You had a financial market that really was spinning out of control and you had George W Bush coming in uh you know and we just looked at the world and we said and gold prices were down to 270 280 dollars an ounce we looked at the world and we said the political economic and financial problems that the world is going to face not over the next year or two which is you know usually we have a year or two of chaos and then things get better and everybody walks away from gold this is going to last for decades yeah, we also have the current international currency regime transition. You had a bunch of issues with financial market regulatory issues that were going on, um, and we said the economic and political environment is going to be more hostile—not for one or two years, but for decades. And in this kind of environment, gold prices are going to go way past the eight hundred and fifty dollars spike peak that you saw on one day in January of 1980. Mm -hmm. And we talked about what we called the gold renaissance, which was that basically investors around the world, many of whom hadn't been legally allowed to own gold in 1980, or there were regulatory impediments that made it unattractive to them. We said, you know, investors around the world are wealthier than they used to be, and they are going to rediscover gold we will see an upward shift in the investment demand curve and more investors will be buying more gold and the price is going to go way past $850 over the next several decades, mm-hmm. not immediately, but over the next several decades. And that was the environment in which we issued that by recommendation. Mm-hmm. And it's all come true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it seems like, you know, there's, there's no lack of of drama in the world to analyze that situation as it is now, but I'd like to get to that maybe a little bit later and, and just spend a little bit of time maybe understanding, let's say, how the drivers for gold and silver are different when analyzing these buy or sell recommendations over whatever time time span you'd like to to start with, let's say.
1: Well yeah, you can look at very, you know, if we pick a couple points, you can tell. You know, so in, in 1979, 1980, Um, it was pretty easy to be bullish in 79. Mm -hmm. You know, we had 14% inflation, 21% interest rates. Paul Volcker had taken over the Fed and he said, we have to stop targeting interest rate and target inflation. Uh, We threw ourselves into the deepest recession at the time since the the World War II and the Great Depression. Uh, We had Soviet troops in Afghanistan, American hostages in Iran, Uh, You had a variety of other economic and political problems. It was very easy to be bullish. And gold went from 190 to 850. At 850, it was very easy to say sell. Um, And, you know, a lot of people don't realize the gold price fell $140 the next day. Or maybe it was 160. It it fell below $700 the next day, you know. Um, And... and, um, we were going into a recession; inflation started coming down. So it's easy, you know. But those were the parameters you were looking at. Nineteen eighty-seven is another interesting example because you started to see the gold price rise in nineteen eighty-five. Uh, in nineteen eighty-seven, the stock market was rising very quickly, and then in October of eighty-seven, it fell sharply, very sharply. Mm-hmm. And the gold price was going from basically two eighty-five in nineteen eighty-five to five hundred dollars. Now, in 1986, we had issued a buy recommendation. The price was around $320, $340 an ounce. Um, But at $500, we looked at the world, and we were listening to the Fed at the time, and the Fed was saying the stock market collapse or crash was a stock market phenomenon. It wasn't an economically triggered uh, crash. And there was a lot of call for the Fed to slash interest rates at that time because we were going to go into a recession. We looked at the economy. We said we don't see a recession until 1990, 1991. We don't think this is an economic crisis. This is a stock market that was overheated. And it was a stock market that was increasingly run by computer-generated buy-and-sell signals. Uh, so we said we thought that the stock market crash was a stock market event. The economy was relatively strong. Inflation was relatively under control. So therefore, gold at $500 was a sell. Yeah, And at that time, we actually laid out like five things that we would want to change uh, and six things that we wanted to emerge before we issued a buy recommendation. Mm-hmm. And those things came to pass in the second half of 1992, early 1993, and we issued a buy recommendation in February of 93. So, but they were different factors, right? And then in 2020 or 2000, I told you, you know, there was a variety of factors. So you look at what's really important. Now, during that period of time from 1980 to 2021, inflation was low and basically declining. And in fact, there were economists who said that inflation was too low. I don't necessarily understand. I think that's an oxymoron, too low of inflation, unless it's deflation. Uh, But we were going through a lot of economic changes and we saw uh, disinflationary pressures keeping inflation rates down. So the gold price went from $2,050 as an intraday low in 2000 to $1,900 in 2011. Uh, and then came down to twelve hundred, and then back up to two thousand again last year. In an environment where inflation wasn't a factor, inflation became a factor last year, after twenty years of being not a factor driving gold prices higher. During that time, there were other factors: political issues, the war in Iraq, uh, terrorism, uh, the devolution of Russia. You know, there are all kinds of other factors that you looked at. So. We take a very eclectic approach and we say, you know, what is it that investors are focusing on and what, what is important and what's not important?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, Jeff, maybe if we could
0: get a little bit about the differences between how you analyze the gold and silver market drivers.
1: How the differences between gold and silver?
0: Yes, if there yeah. are any. <laughs>
1: uh, well, you know, gold, obviously, yeah, they're very similar. Uh, They're very similar, but there are differences. You know, silver, uh, one of the things that's very different is in the gold market, when investors are bearish on gold, they don't buy as much gold. When investors are bearish on silver, they sell it. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So, you know, that's a big, that's a really big difference. Another one is that in gold, you have central bank activity. And central banks and governments really haven't been involved in silver since the 1970s, Mm -hmm. uh, um, 1980s, if you want to stretch it. But, yeah, so you've got the central bank factor in in gold. Uh, There are some differences in the investment community. So, you know, silver and gold are universally accepted as quasi-financial or uh, quasi-currencies. But gold is more accepted than silver. So that's another factor. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you have the byproduct nature of silver production. Yeah, so when you're looking at silver supply you look at copper price projections because the correlation between copper prices and silver mine production is greater than the correlation between silver prices and silver mine production mm-hmm. you don't see that kind of thing in gold gold is gold so you
0: know one of the one of the interesting charts that you guys put together that I came across in in doing research for today Mm -hmm. was the optimal level of metals in a portfolio from a risk reward standpoint. So what what are those levels, if you could share them with us? And does that change over time with different market conditions?
1: Yeah, the chart that we do is, you know, a lot of what we do obfuscates reality a little bit, in that that chart that we do, where you see, you know, well, from 1968 to 2000, Uh, If you take in the month-to-month changes, and so you're measuring monthly returns on stocks, bonds, gold, and silver, and you can say over that period of time, in total, having 25 or 30% of your assets in gold or silver seem to give you the highest return relative to the risks of volatility in your portfolio. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the average over 50 years if you break that down you can find periods of time where it should have been 2% <laughs> and you can find times when it should have been 50%. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. when the stock market is really tanking and interest rates are zero or negative returns and in interest rates and gold prices and silver prices are skyrocketing, you know, it's a different proportion. So that that number of 25 to 30%, that's sort of like if you were a passive investor and you say I have all of this wealth how do I want to invest it?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, I'll put 25% in gold or 12% in gold, 12% in silver. And then I'll take the other you know, 75%, I'm going to put 37% in, in a broad basket of stocks and 37% in treasuries. Um, you know, And over 50 years, this is what it's going to be. But if you're not that passive, if you sort of sit there and you watch the news and you say, I think I should be adding to my goal position now. Or you're watching the news and you're saying, I think I can line up my goal position now. You'll change it accordingly to according to the economic and political environment you're involved mm-hmm. in.
0: So, Jeff, of course, one of the points that I've I've heard you make is about the idea of how how bad data can affect the outcomes <laughs> of these decisions. So I'd like to talk a little bit with you about how bad data can come about. Is it bad information or is it conjecture? You know, how does some of the, the misinformation and or disinformation come about in this space, do you think?
1: It comes from different places. And, you know, first off, gold and silver, all commodities are very secretive and people don't realize it. Gold and silver are even more secretive. So there is a an absence of good data. And in an absence of good data, the the void gets filled with bad information. You know, it's just like the balloons over the Americas right now. You know, uh, if somebody were to say something about it, you know, maybe there'd be fewer speculations. Um, There are people who consciously misrepresent gold and silver. There are a lot of other people who believe things about gold and silver. Gold. All you need to know about gold is the dollar. You know, gold mm-hmm. trades against the dollar. So if the dollar's rising, I'll sell my gold, and if the dollar's falling, I'll buy my gold. And then you know, thirty-four percent of the time that works. The other sixty-six percent uh, of the time, you're losing money. Uh, or gold is an inflation hedge. So there are a lot of beliefs. Uh, and then because of the secretive nature, I mean, we benefit from the fact that we've been our group. You know, started year, uh, more than a decade before I took over managing it. Our group has been collecting data from around the world on precious metals and other commodities since the late sixties, early seventies. And we have this vast body of information. We also have connections around the world with people. And because we, do, we do research and then we apply that research into consulting, we see things that a desk analyst just reading what he can, he or she can can get don't necessarily see. Mm-hmm. So we'll see something in the market, like you know we were talking before you started recording about some of the recent trends in China in terms of demand. Mm-hmm. We'll see things in China, and then it becomes some of it becomes public and it's misrepresented and misinterpreted. There's also been some conscious misrepresentation. You know, there were people in the early '90s, mid '90s who wanted to present gold and silver in a more bullish light, uh, and there was a dispute among marketing between marketing groups and the mining companies that supported them, where uh, the mar- the mining companies were saying, "Well, you know, gold and silver prices are kind of low and weak, and you're supposed to be promoting gold and silver use or investment demand." and and the price is kind of weak. And they said, well, if you add in investment demand into fabrication demand, you have deficits
2: mm-hmm. as
1: opposed to surpluses, which is what was going on in gold at the time. And also part of the weakness is not because of a uh, lack of investment demand or fabrication demand. Uh, it's a matter, it's because you, the producers are selling forward and when you sell forward, someone finds sterile gold or silver that's not being in the market, not circulating in the market, and they sell it in the spot market to hedge their long, uh, their their forward purchase from you, mm-hmm. which isn't the case. But as a result, you had, you know, hundreds of millions of ounces of silver and tens of millions of ounces of gold showing up as spot supply. You know, uh, and it just wasn't there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think there's a lot of misinformation. The gold and silver markets are extremely asymmetrical as are all commodity markets, you know. Um, And um, there's a very poor distribution of good information and there's a very poor distribution of the ability to really analyze information. Yeah, In the 1990s, we were working with the World Bank on a variety of commodities-related things, mostly with agricultural commodities. Mm-hmm. And, and I was asked in a meeting, you know, the uh, efficient market theory suggests that, and the, the Black-Scholes model for options pricing, suggests that commodity options should be X. But they are always more expensive than X. And how do you explain that, Mr. Christian? And, you know, I said, no, the efficient market theory is that if a market were efficient, by which they mean economists mean that they are perfectly symmetrical, everyone has all of the information they need. If you have an efficient, symmetrical market, then the Black show model would suggest that options are such. But across commodities, you have a very, they are among the most asymmetrical markets in the world. Some people know a whole lot of stuff, and a lot of people know nothing, Mm -hmm. you know, except the price. Yeah. And in an asymmetrical market, there is a risk premium attached to the options premium. And that's why options and commodities across commodities are more expensive than one would think if one were looking at them and saying, well, everybody knows everything about these.
0: Mm -hmm. Is part of the problem as well, Jeff, that the gold industry doesn't know anything about itself?
1: Yeah, that's a real problem. Uh, Yeah, I mean, you know, we had some people maybe a decade ago who were trying to be bullish. And they said, well, CPM Group and the World Gold Council underestimate the amount of gold being used in China. And what they were doing was they were talking about how the Shanghai Gold Exchange, you would see the gold that came out. And they would say, well, you know, there's three times as much gold coming out of the Shanghai Gold Exchange as CPM Group and the World Gold Council say. So fabrication demand in China must be three times what these guys say. And they didn't realize that when you are making jewelry or electronics or anything else, you have a tremendous amount of process scrap. So if you're making electronic components and you're using a sputtering target, uh, you have about an 85% scrappage rate. So you have a hundred ounce bar or a thousand ounces of gold that come off of the Shanghai Gold Exchange in hundred ounce bars, cast into a high purity thousand ounce sputtering target. And you make electronics or electron or, or jewelry components out of that, and eighty five percent of it gets recovered in the manu- from the manufacturing process and re refined and recast into hundred ounce bars and re delivered to the SGE where they're repurchased by people who are making stuff out of them. So you have an eighty five percent scrappage rate. So really, only fifteen percent. Of the gold that's coming off of the SGE, if it's all being used in sputtering targets, only fifteen percent is actually going into products.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, you're using a thousand ounces, but you're only using one hundred and fifty ounces in manufactured products, and the other eight hundred and fifty gets recycled.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, if it's cast casting, the scrappage rate's about fifty. So that's why you have it. So we worked with the SGE and the china gold association and we we circulated this explanation so that people would stop this crazy speculation and i had a steady stream of mining executives from major mining companies saying what's a sputtering target you know i say well it's what most of your product goes into so <laughs> you know, and and um most of them had no idea how the gold was actually used
2: mm-hmm.
1: or who was using it. And you would talk to these guys back then and you'd say, why don't you market gold? I never said that, but people would say, you know, the gold producers don't market gold. And they say, we don't market gold. We sell it to the banks and they market it. But no, the banks don't market the gold. They sell it
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> or they lease it. So on that, on that subject, Jeff,
0: is the market in China, you know, materially different than elsewhere in the world?
1: Oh, yeah. It's it's quite different. And you know what I was just saying about the mining executives not necessarily understanding where their gold used. In China, if you're in the gold business, any place along the line, you could be working in a mine, you could be working in a jewelry factory, you could be selling it to investors, you could be investing in it. You have to study And you have to understand the gold market throughout the chain. And you have to take tests and pass the tests Mm -hmm. so that you understand it. You know, the gold market in China, China is a communist country. I I don't know how many times I have to tell clients that, you know, China is a managed economy and it has a lot more regulations. And one of the regulations is you got to know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because the Chinese Communist Party, The purpose of the Chinese government is to keep the Chinese Communist Party in power. Mm. And there's a view that China, you know, in the United States, Alan Greenspan used to talk about creative destruction. You know, that's the capitalist system. We're all speeding on the highway, bumper to bumper. You know, it's dangerous. All of a sudden there's a crash and we inch around the crash and then we start speeding bumper to bumper again. Yeah. Creative destruction. That's the capitalist system. In China, they say we can't afford a crash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have to be much more cautious in moving our economy forward.
0: Because it could it could bring other parts of their leadership under question and exactly. thereby causing a, a greater crash. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. So are they do you think they're secretive about what their central bank gold holdings are? Or is that is that let's say myth? Within the industry that they hold, you know, somewhere close to forty thousand tons. Do you think that's that's accurate, or are they just under reporting, or are they reporting correctly? Do you think
1: they used to be much more secretive, but they changed their they changed their policies and they're much more transparent now. Mm-hmm. And they changed it in two notches. First one was in two thousand nine, and the second one was I think around two thousand fifteen. Where they change their policies, and I believe the forty thousand tons or whatever it is is pure nonsense it's It's by people who want to sell gold to naive investors mm-hmm. uh, i and and there's another thing that it's very interesting you hear it all the time on the internet. oh well, the Chinese have just now in November and December started reporting their gold reserves again. And that's actually not true. The Chinese have reported their gold reserves to the IMF every month, forever, (laughs) since they became members. Uh, There were lags prior to 2015. But in 2015, they said, OK, we're adding a bunch of gold to our reserves that we had built up in a trading inventory, and we're now adding them to our monetary reserves. Most of that gold was bought internally from internal sources, because the People's Bank of China still works as a buyer and seller for clients, if you will. Other government agencies, large corporations, base metal smelters that have byproduct gold and silver, they'll help them sell that stuff mm-hmm. or they'll help jewelers buy stuff or they'll help investor, large investment firms buy stuff. And there's the China Investment Corp, which is the Sovereign Wealth Fund, and it has investments holdings as opposed to the central bank having monetary holdings. And they keep those things in separate ledgers. Mm -hmm. And I, I have to say that's not unique to the Chinese government. Many central banks around the world, you know, dozens of central banks around the world have a national market making capacity and they have trading inventories that are not monetary reserves that they use to buy and sell To supply the market, domestic market, or to market domestic production, both from scrap refining and from mines. So that's not unique. But the Chinese government in 2015 said okay, we're adding some metal that we've had in our inventories uh, to our monetary reserves, and we're going to continue to do it. We're mostly sourcing this from domestic production, and we will report it as we add it. Now And from 2015 until the present, every month they report. And what they didn't do is they stopped buying around 2018, 2019 for a time because the price was too high in their mind. Mm -hmm. They had a lot of gold. They had gone from like 1% of their monetary reserves to about 3% of their monetary reserves in gold. They said this is enough and the price has gotten very high. We're going to wait. And they stopped buying uh, gold. But they reported it all along. It's just that every month they said, no, we didn't buy any gold. Mm -hmm. Or we didn't add any gold to our monetary reserves. And then in November, they said, okay, for the first time in several years, we added gold to our monetary reserves. Mm -hmm. So it's not that they stopped reporting and have restarted. It's that they have been reporting that they haven't been buying for several years. And now in the last two, three months, they've said, okay, we're buying again. Mm -hmm.
0: Despite the high price.
1: <laughs> well,
0: well rela- a, relatively high price, right?
1: There's an important thing here. People have made a big bullish case out of the fact that the People's Bank of uh, China has been adding gold over the you know November, December, January uh, to its monetary reserves. Mm-hmm. But understand the mechanics of what they were doing. As I said, they will buy and sell for domestic entities, both government entities and private entities. And they have a separate trading account. And again, the U.S. government doesn't do that, uh, but many other governments do it. The Philippines, Brazil, Argentina, Saudi Arabia, um, many other governments will do that. There'll be a national supplier or market maker. And when you look at the People's Bank of China and what they've done and what they've reported, that they've done and not done, and you look at the price of gold and you look at what was going on within the Chinese domestic market, it's not necessarily a bullish thing that they're adding this gold to their reserves. Let me explain. The price of gold spiked very high in the first quarter of 2022, Mm -hmm. and then it declined. And during that period of time, you saw very anemic Domestic demand for gold within China. Some of that weakness was investors selling their gold. Other suppliers, like refiners of of gold, were saying, We don't see anyone who wants to buy our gold in the Chinese market. So, People's Bank of China, will you sell it for us? And it looks like to us that the People's Bank of China. Saw a large influx of gold in the first 10 months of 2022. You know, people who had bought high and then they were disenchanted and they were selling their gold, or people who were refining gold and couldn't find an outlet. And the Chinese government wants that gold to stay in China. So that stuff may have been being built up in the trading stocks of the People's Bank of China. And the People's Bank of China say, well, $2,000, $1,900, $1,880. I'm not interested in buying this stuff. But on November 3rd, the price got down to $1, you know, $1,640 or so. And the People's Bank of China might have said, okay, we've got this large amount of gold uh, in our trading in- inventories. The price has been falling for seven months. The price is now at a very low and attractive level. Let's take a million ounces and add it to our monetary reserves. Mm -hmm. And then the price started rising. And so in December, let's take another 10 tons and add it to our monetary reserve. And then, you know, the price kept rising and they added another chunk in January. So it's a very positive thing that they're adding gold and that they signal basically that these are attractive prices. But the fact of the matter is that that gold may have been available to them because of weak domestic demand for gold in China.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So it may not be as bullish a story as some of the marketeers would like us all to believe. Mm
0: -hmm. Are there material differences between where they source their gold from in the market and where maybe other central banks do? And does that have different effects on on the, the actual price of the metals?
1: Yeah, the Chinese central bank, generally speaking, buys from domestic production. And that's either mine production that's being refined in in China or its secondary recovery or its imported base metals concentrates that have byproduct gold and silver. So they'll buy copper, lead and zinc. Uh, they not the central bank, but Chinese smelters, which account for anywhere from 20 to 40 percent of domestic of, of international base metals smelting and refining. They'll import. Base metals concentrates. And the gold and silver that they refine as byproduct out of those concentrates, they will sell into the market. But the People's Bank of China really wants that gold that is produced in China, either from scrap or from mine its own mine production or from imported ores and concentrates, it wants that gold to stay in China. So they encourage other entities within China to own that gold. And if they don't want it, They'll take it. That's kind of unique. There are central banks like in Brazil and the Philippines and Russia uh, where they will tend, like in Russia and Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, if you're producing refined gold, you're ostensibly supposed to sell it to the central bank. I'm sorry, in Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, that's the case. Um, In Russia, it used to be the case, but it's no longer the case.
0: Right, we've seen some some changes in that within the last year, right? Kind of back. And I'm not forth. sure
1: that we've actually seen it. What you've seen is that there's a domestic. There's a premium for gold in Russia since <laughs> they invaded the Ukraine. Uh, there's a premium in the, the the free market, if you will, for gold in in Russia. And so you know, when Russia, when the government first invaded Ukraine and sanctions came in. Uh, you saw the government say that they would pay. They wanted buy gold from domestic refiners, and they would pay a discount to the international price. And the domestic refiners were saying, "Okay, right now I'm getting this enormous premium from private Russian entities who they've had their bank accounts frozen because <laughs> they can't get money. Uh, they they're watching their government go to war with a neighbor." You know sanctions are being imposed. They're losing their jobs. They want to buy gold. They're paying a premium. So why would I you know I you know, I could be a good Russian citizen and take a discount and pay it to the government. But I'm not a good Russian citizen. I'm going to take a premium and sell it to someone who'll pay me more than the international price mm-hmm. rather than less. And that's why you know, the Russian government came out with this announcement and and again, the promoters start saying, "Oh, they're going to a gold backed ruble. no. They were offering a discount to the market, and and the refiners were saying, I got no gold for you. I'm sorry. Uh, So that, I think it lasted like five days. Mm -hmm. It was a very short period of time. And then the Russian central bank said, okay, we're killing that program, and we will buy gold at prices related to the international price.
0: So... I'd like to stick with China just just a little bit more, Jeff, if we could. Why would they want to stay away from having the reserve currency of the world?
1: If you look at the history of reserve currencies of the world, and you probably go back to Roman times, but definitely the French and then the British and then the U.S., there are real costs to having the reserve currency of the world. Uh, And the Chinese... Government and central bank have have studied history and they said, you know, that, that's really not what we want. Yeah, you know, we really don't want cabillions of yuan circulating out of our control. Yeah. You know, until 2015, they didn't even allow overseas yuan-denominated bonds. You know, what we would call a euro bond, uh, you know, or a Yankee or a bulldog. They didn't want that. They only started allowing those around 2015. And really, they started liberalizing after 2008. And they did that because they didn't like the way the U.S. Treasury handled the financial crisis. Um, So, but they've looked at the world and they said, hey, we don't necessarily want the world controlling the one. We'd rather control the Mm one. You know, the the joke back 20 years ago was that... uh, the dollar was going to collapse, and 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 uh, George Bush would have this problem. And the joke among currency traders was, so somebody goes to George Bush and says, you've got a problem. The dollar's collapsing. And he goes to Cheney and says, you've got a problem. The dollar's co- collapsing. And Cheney calls the premier, prime minister of China and says, you've got a problem. The dollar's collapsing because you've got three thousand three trillion dollars of dollars
2: mm-hmm.
1: and we don't have any. You know, by definition, the U.S. government doesn't hold U.S. dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's the holder of those dollars. And the conversely, you know, the Chinese government says we don't ever want to be in a position where we have the reserve currency and somebody's dumping it. Right. So like most central banks they would like to see a multipolar international currency regime. Yeah, you know, they want the yuan to be important, like they want the Chinese government and Chinese country to be important politically, economically and socially, mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily want it to be the currency. Yeah.
0: So what do you see as the downstream consequences of The BRICS Nations, you know, making moves towards being able to transact without using the dollar.
1: This is something that's been going on for that that's been trying to go on for 40 years. And it's it's something that, you know, if you I guess if you're internationalist, you might say a multi-currency, a multipolar current international currency regime would be good. And this is the beginnings of a more substantial move toward it, no one that's actually involved in it, definitely not the People's Bank of China or the Reserve Bank of India, uh, think that you are going to replace the dollar anytime soon. And and uh, you still have, for example, like uh, the Ghanaian government has announced that they have this gold for oil program. And people in the gold market have made a big deal out of it. But what's really happening is The Ghanaian government needs to import diesel. Uh, It doesn't have the diesel refining capacity internally to supply itself. It is chronically short of U.S. dollars to pay for that diesel. But it has a big gold mining industry. And some of that gold mining industry pays gold into the central bank. So the central bank said, OK, we need to import diesel. We need to pay for it. Uh, We have gold. Will you take gold? And the program runs this way. The oil and the diesel are denominated in US dollars. The gold is denominated in dollars. The company selling the imported diesel fuel to the government says, Yeah, I'll take gold at this dollar denominated exchange rate. Or they say, I don't want your gold. And the government will sell the gold and give the oil importer dollars
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know and you see that over and over again you know in saudi arabia the uae india a lot of these countries are talking about settling using other currencies but the transactions are denominated in dollars and then converted to the currencies used for settlement mm-hmm. And it's not just oil. I mean, that's one of the things. Another thing that people get wrong—they keep talking about the death of the petrodollar. You know, something like eighty percent of international transactions are paid in U.S. dollars. So So it's
0: it's everything. It's been a it's been a really long road, maybe, and it'll continue to be that way, probably. Right.
1: If you look at reserve currencies of choice de facto or de jure. The British pound was the de facto and de jure reserve currency at the turn of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And by the beginning of World War II, it no longer was the de facto reserve currency. It was the dollar, Mm -hmm. right? And if you look at oil sales in Europe, They were still denominated in pound sterling in the early 1980s. It was only like in the early 1980s that what was then uh, ARA, it's now Brent oil, was changed from being paid or denominated in pound sterling to U.S. dollars. So the historical capacity to be a reserve currency will linger long after the currency ought to be a reserve currency. And you should expect that with the dollar too. This is going to go on for decades because you have 60% of monetary reserves in US dollars, and you have probably 70 to 80% of private financial wealth denominated in US dollars. So even if you say, well, we're going to stop using dollars tomorrow, first off, well, you have a problem because you have the dollars. We don't have the dollars. You know, It's your problem to do that. But the reality is that there aren't enough currencies to grease the wheels of uh, of international trade. Mm-hmm. So it would be hyperinflationary for every other country to say, oh, my God, we need all these extra euros and pounds sterling and won to get rid of the dollar. So, you know, we worked with the People's Bank of China in the early 80s uh, on some theoretical work related to gold and silver and currencies and the idea that the one might someday be um, convertible.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, I was a young guy there. I was kind of naive. And and one night uh, over dinner, one of the Chinese economists said, Mr. Christian, don't get excited. know, yeah, this is stuff that's going to take decades to evolve. And we saw some of the policy changes that they were talking about in 1981, 1982, implemented in 2001, 2002. Yeah, and those were the early ones. Mm -hmm. So it's going to take a long time for the dollar to move away from being such a dominant currency.
0: Mm -hmm. Jeff, I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk about another little tidbit I came, came upon in in one of your recent videos why have the mining stocks ended up with a lower beta as opposed to you know years past to the price of the underlying metal what what are those structural let's say market changes that have caused that yeah
1: it's a, it's a complex set of factors you know and one of them is that the institutional investors and high net worth individuals and family offices have come to see the mining industry collectively as not particularly well managed and not particularly an attractive place to put your money. So it has suffered from a lack of investor interest there. There's another factor, which is the move away from investing in individual stocks to investing in either stock index funds or stock indices, or stock ETFs, indexed ETFs. Mm -hmm. And what you've got is like a separation of the stock market and capital formation. Stock markets were created in order for investors to put money in the companies and the companies to use that money to build their companies. And you've, you're finding that capital formation is being cut out of the stock market. Thing. And I should say, in the 1880s, Karl Marx wrote that this would happen, so, you know, uh, which I guess heartens some socialists off in various corners of the world. Uh, so that's one of the things. But within that, then there are other issues. And there's been some major structural changes on the st- the buy side of the institutional investment market, and those are affecting the sell side. And the buy side is actually under pressure to perform better uh, and to lower its costs. And at the same time that's happening, you're seeing that over the last, say, decade, you know, there have been years when stock pickers have beaten the indices, but more often than not, the indices beat the stock pickers. And the stock pickers can be very expensive to maintain. So you have senior management at a lot of institutional investment fund companies saying, I want to move to computer generated indices because they offer our clients better returns and they're easier to deal with. Mm-hmm. And we can get rid of this massive amount of overhead that we have with guys analyzing companies and deciding which things to do and then going to traders and then the traders now input it and there's another thing which is is this is where it hits the sell side is you know all of a sudden the sell the 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 buy side says wait a second i'm paying you broking fees but what are you doing because you know we've got your trading platform on our computer and we're inputting the trades it's not like you're working the trade on the floor of the exchange anymore so Mm -hmm. why are we paying you these uh fees and that has then caused the fees on the buy side to contract and the buy side to contract, and the buy side can no longer deal with or or support a lot of research because it has lower revenues per trade. So you get rid of the research, and what are you going to do? Well, you're going to sell the index things because you don't need research to sell those. So there's this contraction in the stock market and changes in the way institutional investors trade stocks that have nothing to do with mining, but they have everything to do with a sharp reduction in the amount of trading in individual stocks, especially smaller cap stocks. So there's a complex set of factors. I mean, we did a study for our client in, I want to say 2018. uh, And we had like six factors behind the withdrawal of institutional investment activity in the mining industry. And five of them had nothing to do with mining. So that's one of the things. And I think that shift in the way investors look at investments is behind the decline in the beta of gold shares to gold. Jeff, do you
0: think that the financial press spends too much time and emphasis on the importance of inflation? Yes. <laughs> Short answer, yes.
1: Yeah. You
0: know, maybe we could expand on that. Obviously, it's it's a very hot topic. It's something that the Fed is focused squarely on at this point. And we've recently seen a change to how CPI is being calculated. So how do you see all of those factors and, and why should it be, let's say, less important?
1: Well, I'll I'll say a couple things. First off, the change that we saw is an annual rebalancing of the CPI portfolio. So it's not like they said, hey, something's wrong here. Every year at the beginning of the year, the Bureau of Labor Statistics goes off and says, what does a typical consumer basket look like? And they actually don't answer that themselves. They have thousands of U.S. citizens who volunteer to keep track of what they spend, what they buy each month and what they pay for it. And they feed that information to the BLS. So the BLS composites, compiles the consumer price index based on what thousands of U.S. consumers say they're buying mm-hmm. and paying for it. Yeah, so you have all this garbage about, oh, it's heuristic and it's not rep- representing. No, this is actually representing a very good survey, a very broad survey of what people are actually buying and what they're actually spending on stuff. Mm -hmm. And then once a year, they say, "Okay, over the course of the past year, how has that basket of consumer purchases changed? And they reapportion the weightings based on what people are actually paying for.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. So that's the change. That's the first thing. Second thing is... um, I don't think that investor, the financial press is paying too much attention to CPI or inflation, but they're paying a very superficial, uh, attention to it. So okay. they report the high, they report the headline number and maybe they report the core, uh, excluding food and energy, but they don't really get into it and they don't really explain it. You know, inflation is not a single thing. It's a composite of changing prices, you know. And and so you'll see, for example, in the January CPI, food prices were very high. Uh, Some energy prices were very high. Some energy service prices were actually lower than they had been the month before. Uh, Service, non-food and energy service provision, especially transportation, rose sharply. I think that was about up seven point two percent. So more than the headline was the non-food and energy services uh, rising in prices, and non-food and energy commodities, which is everything else. I mean, you know, they they call it commodities, but it's cars, it's clothing, it's you know, uh, rolls of masking tape, whatever people are buying. Um, those actually were very low, like 1.4%. So you're seeing, and you've got to look at it, you know, so you can go back into food and if, uh, and you can see, okay, well, you know, egg prices went from $2 to 50, a dozen to $8. Okay. Well, that's inflation, but how, what do you mean What that's inflation? You mean that you have an aviary flu, uh, which has caused poultry, farms uh, to slaughter tens of millions of chickens, Mm -hmm. which has reduced the production of eggs. Yeah. It's a very specific thing that's there and you can go through all of these things. A very
0: specific mechanism.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know that it's that, well, I don't know that I, the press spends too much time fixating on inflation, but they don't, do inflation justice in reporting it?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: yeah. And then just to the corollary, because this is probably why you asked the question, I think the gold press spends more time on inflation than they really should because they think about well, gold and inflation, even though gold responds to all sorts of other stuff, too.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be a a great correlation over time specific to CPI, right?
1: But if you look at the last 20 years, again, you know, November of 2000, the price of gold was $270. Uh, Now it's down to $1,860, you know, but it got up to $2,000 from 2000 to 2020, 2021, Mm -hmm. uh, 2022. And throughout that period of time, inflation was low and falling until 2021. Mm-hmm. So you had 1920 years of incredibly strong gold price increases
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, in an absence of inflation. Yeah. So what was it that was driving investors to bid up the price of gold for 1920 years when inflation wasn't a problem? Mm-hmm.
0: And again, it comes back to some of those other drivers for gold. Exactly. So how does CPM see the outlook for recession for? 2023-2024
1: here? We have been, for several years, we've been saying that we thought that there could be a recession 2024-2025, maybe, in that period. We didn't see one for 2023, and we still don't. Okay. And and one of the things that's happened over the last, say, six to eight weeks, is that you've seen stronger economic figures coming in. You have seen the Fed take a more dramatic approach toward inflation, you've seen the financial markets actually, just in the last week or so, start to pay attention to what the Fed's been telling them. You know, So there's the actual reality of Fed policy, and then there is the financial market saying, yeah, the Fed's going to have to start lowering interest rates sooner than they think. And over the last, say, two months, you've seen stronger economic activity. You're seeing indications that uh, real economic activity may be stronger this year than you know. Even the pessimists, like we had thought, you probably aren't going to see a recession this year. You'll probably see inflation continue to dwindle lower. You know, uh, you might see like three percent real GDP this year. We still think that there will be a recession at some point, but it could be further delayed, given the strength in the U.S. economy but there are clearly a lot of inflationary pressures that are or recessionary pressures rather that are growing
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh that could upset that apple cart and then you have the whole political situation
0: yeah which which comes you know really really into play around around 2024 right with the election
1: yes the election is bad but you know the the debt ceiling issue now mm-hmm. is a joke and and, and you're probably going to see other Bad behaviors on the part of Congress and and the administration mm-hmm. over the course of this year. I th- think that they may not be so bad as to upset the e- economy this year, but mm-hmm. you're really, you know, you've got an economy that is pretty strong.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jeff, you and I have spoken before about this. Maybe we can call it a bubble chart, the red, green, blue chart. Um, <laughs> yeah that takes into account many different factors that cpm mm-hmm. puts to, together so has that chart materially changed over the last 2 years
1: oh yeah i mean in 2020 and 2021 the bubbles which were you know bad for the world and good for gold mm-hmm. uh the bubbles got bigger and they moved close they they grew in significance and they grew in probability that they would be an effect on the economy and gold prices sooner rather than later, like within Mm. the next six to 12 months. And that was true in 2020 and 2021. In the second half of 2022, we've started seeing some of those bubbles shrink a bit. They're a little bit less important. They're a little bit less threatening and also move away from that six to 12-month period. They, They haven't disappeared But we're saying, okay, there is a decreased probability that these things will be critical within the next 12 months. It may be beyond the next 12 months when they become critical. So Mm -hmm. we backed away from, you know, the the really scary part of that chart, which was, you know, late 2021, early
0: 2022. Mm -hmm. So. You've come to, let's say, dub 2023 as the year of transition. So, what are some of the important themes or events that are making this year want to watch? If you could lay that out for us. Yeah.
1: Well, I think one of the things is the economy, you know, and we are transitioning sooner or later, and maybe later than I, you know, I dubbed it in December. <laughs> uh, we are moving toward a recession at some point, mm-hmm. we will see lower growth. Uh, We are seeing an increased change in the international government, intergovernmental cooperation, and that may shift over the course of this year. Right now, it's obviously very hostile, uh, but they're, you know, watching the Chinese Communist Party Congress in late last year and the aftermath of that in terms of Chinese political activity removal of zero COVID and some other things, uh, I think that you could see the Chinese government, well, you are seeing already the Chinese government wanting to be a little bit more friendly with the Mm -hmm. rest of the world, simply because they've realized how much it's cost them as an economy and as the companies that belong in that economy. And and I think they've realized that, unfortunately, the United States has made it very clear. I mean, you know, Biden has repeatedly said, we've stopped seeing China as a potential partner, and we see them as an adversary. You know, so there's this increased hostility. But I think that we'll have to see how that plays out. Obviously, the war uh, in Ukraine is going to possibly have a decisive year this year. Um, And uh, within domestic politics, you're probably going to start seeing some shifts. You're already seeing the shifts, you know, and you're seeing an increasing number of Republicans sort of backing away from the Trump camp and trying to find more common moderate ground. You're seeing a little bit of that on the Democratic side, but the Democratic Party still seems to be in the throes of the more extreme progressive parts, but that may change too over the course of this year. We think that inflation will will transition from rising. I mean, it's been falling now for seven months, and it probably will continue to fall. I'm not quite sure what's going to happen in terms of European politics, but I think it's very important. Mm -hmm. There's a whole lot of things bubbling just under the surface or just above the surface throughout the Muslim world. Maybe not in Morocco, but let's say from Libya to Indonesia. Uh, you have things changing there. You have things changing in China. You have cha- things changing in the gold and silver markets too. So I think that's there. One of the things, that because we do a lot of work on on energy transition metals and, and hydrogen engines and stuff like that, mm-hmm. I think that you're seeing a uh, pivot away from – blindly optimistic expectations of how fast we can have an energy transition to a much more realistic uh, idea of what's going to happen. Uh, you know, If I could ask, what are some of
0: the indications that you're seeing that, that maybe some sobriety <laughs> is coming into those, those timelines to be able to actually make that transition?
1: Uh, well, I've been invited or, asked to speak about it in several key places, including the PDAC next month, uh, Society of Mining Engineers, and, and someplace else that I can't remember. So I have a number of things that I'm working on. Uh, I think that you're seeing more public comments referring to the, the mainstream or base case International Energy Agency forecasts for the transition Rather than the hunky-dory, let's believe that everything that we agreed upon in Paris 20 years ago is going to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, so you're seeing fewer people talk about that great transition scenario and they're looking at more realistic things. Uh, You're also seeing things like, you know, um, some of the mining operations, not just in the United States, but in other countries, too, that are necessary to come up with these materials. Being... Put on hold or being you know really uh, delayed by political and environmental and social opposition to them and you're seeing a lot of people who are like you know we have a chart that it shows the yawning persistent deficits in high purity nickel high purity manganese lithium rare earths uh, cobalt uh, and You're seeing more and more people look at those charts and say, if you can't get these metals, you can't produce those electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. So if you have this really optimistic view that you're going to have 50% of the cars in the world being electric vehicles by 2030 and 100% by 2035, but you can't get the raw materials to build those cars, you can't build those cars. I mean, gold, you've got like. 4 billion ounces of reserves above ground, refined gold above ground. Silver, you've got about 5 billion ounces of, of, of refined silver above ground. Cobalt, high purity manganese, high purity nickel sulfate, lithium, you don't have that. You have a couple of weeks or a couple months worth of inventories. And there are all kinds of obstacles to ramping up production. Mm-hmm. Of all of those things so i think a lot of more people are just sort of saying yeah let's be honest this isn't going to happen
0: mm-hmm. so you know maybe in that vein jeff how do you see the future or the, the the outlook on oil coal you know these these pieces of the energy puzzle that that many of these countries still depend on heavily i know i heard a stat the other day that 2022 ended up being a new record for coal use in the world, which yes. is obviously, you know, completely opposite to what most people are are thinking and, and want the direction that they're wanting to head. So how do the traditional fossil fuels still fit into the picture?
1: We use the mainstream IEA projections, and they say that by 2050, the major source of energy for humankind will be petroleum still and natural gas will be the second largest and non-hydro non-nuclear renewables will be a third having displaced coal around 2040 2041 and coal will be the fourth largest source so the iea you know which is paid to be right not bullish or op- overly optimistic or ever- overly pessimistic the iea says that you know 30 years from now we're still going to be heavily relying on hydrocarbons. And we agree with them. Yeah. Uh, because you just, you know, we'd love to see an energy transition. Uh, but there are great uncertainties in the energy transition. Um, I am heartened to see that people are talking more about hydrogen engines. Mm-hmm. I've been a big fan of hydrogen engines for years now, and um uh, they Offer the potential for a more rapid movement away from hydrocarbons, but they're probably 10 years away from any takeoff point.
0: Which would seemingly be very bullish for the platinum group metals, if I'm if I'm no? No. Not correct? Because of the because of the catalyst necessary no. for
1: them? The idea that we're still going to be heavily relying on hydrocarbons mm-hmm. is very bullish for platinum group metals because yeah, they'll still be, right. they'll still be needed to clean the exhaust. Mm-hmm. Hydrogen engines would be bad for PGMs because you don't need a catalyst to clean the exhaust of a hydrogen engine.
0: I thought there was, it was more platinum was more necessary in the, energy conversion of hydrogen
1: that's what some south african producers say for fuel cells yeah but a a hydrogen engine is an internal combustion engine that ignites hydrogen oh okay drive the pistons and you know the the proof of concept internal combustion engine was in 1806 and it used hydrogen as the fuel Mm -hmm. and this french inventor demonstrated an internal combustion engine He said, now, the problem is you can't use hydrogen, you know, so we have to find a fuel. That was 1806, and the oil industry really started to emerge, I think, around the 1870s, 1880s. So it was like 60-some-odd years, I think, before they said, okay, we can burn oil in an ICE. Uh, But uh, an internal combustion engine that ignites hydrogen can use air, and the hydrogen ignites around 800 degrees, And the nitrogen in the air ignites like like 2,000 degrees. Mm -hmm. So you don't oxidize the nitrogen. So you don't have nitric and nitrous oxides. Mm -hmm. You only have water vapor and nitrogen and the other gases as your exhaust. Mm -hmm. And the componentry involved in a hydrogen engine is much less and much simpler than the componentry in an internal combustion engine that burns diesel or gasoline, uh, and much less complex than a fuel cell. Uh, And um, you have certain issues because the hydrogen will eat the steel. So you have to have specialty steels um, Mm -hmm. or coated steels uh, in a hydrogen system. The real kicker is liquid organic hydrogen carriers. And those would allow safe and cheap shipping, storing, and distribution of hydrogen. And once someone figures out what the right liquid organic hydrogen carriers are, then you can start moving toward this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it, it it would radically change a lot of metals industries.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Jeff, maybe, maybe before we wrap up here, tantalum is a metal that it, few ever really hear about, talk about, <laughs> anything like that. I noticed you do some research on, on your website. So, what is it, and why do you cover it?
1: We, um, the second question is harder to answer. Tantalum <laughs> is a specialty metal mm-hmm. that is used in semiconductors, and it's pretty much indispensable in semiconductors and some capacitors. So, it's used throughout the electronics industry and the electronics industry is used throughout society mm-hmm. so it's it's really an indispensable metal that as you said a lot of people haven't heard about it they have heard about it because coltan uh which is mined in the democratic republic of congo in under often under not always but often under less than ideal environmental and social and government uh governance uh standards Coltan is one of the major sources of tantalum. Uh, There are tantalum projects and mines elsewhere. and Australia, one of our views is that over the next 10 years, you'll see Australia emerge as a mainstream, clean source of tantalum uh, supplies. Uh, But, you know, so you've got a metal that is indispensable to most parts of modern life, at least on the non-energy and food commodity side of the cpi list um it's indispensable and there are supply issues due to the preponderance of drc as a source of supply right now uh so we like those metals i mean we got involved in gold and silver and platinum group metals because they were secretive and no one knew about them Mm -hmm. and uh you know The fellow who created the research operation that is CPM said, this is a highly secretive asymmetrical markets. And if we can develop a slightly better stream of information, we can beat the market.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's true across specialty metals, including tantalum. Excellent. Jeff, is there anything else that you'd like to
0: touch on today, maybe that we, we didn't cover before we wrap up?
1: I think we've talked about a lot. I, I can't really think of the, anything right off the top of my head.
0: Perfect. Of course, you guys are available at cpmgroup.com for gold gold yearbook, silver yearbook, tantalum research, many different, many yeah. different spots, right? Yes. And you've been doing, I believe, twice weekly videos on your YouTube channel, CPM Group, and of course, your Twitter channel, at CPM Group LLC, right? Yes. Excellent. Yes. Jeff, thanks so much for sharing your uh, your insights and your views with us today. It's always a pleasure. Take care. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.